And I, because, yeah, and actually you could just do it almost by, um, you know, sort of like almost uh, measure your time like a budget. Okay, well, I'm spending all my time doing this. This must be what I love. Yes. And I'm fitting in everything else, just like, you know, okay, you get the dishes done because you have to do it. But, you know, cooking is the fun part of it. Welcome to The Unconventional Path, Secrets to Igniting Your Business with Bela and Mike. I'm Bela Musitz, the David D. Ray Professor of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Clarkson University. And I'm Mike Wasserman, Professor of International Management at Münster University of Applied Sciences in Münster, Germany. Today's guest is Mark Dwansnick, a wonderful serial entrepreneur who's been very successful. Uh, I interviewed, I interviewed Mark uh, in my living room. He stopped over at the house. And uh, we had a nice conversation. And uh, I think this was uh, just a great, great uh, insight into sort of the way uh, Mark is and, and, and the way he thinks. Before we dive into that, uh, we would like to try something new, and uh, that is respond to listener questions. So if you have a question about entrepreneurship, one of our guests, or some of the topics that we've talked about here, uh, we'd love to hear from you. So please drop us an email at bela.and dot mike at gmail.com and we'll respond to your questions online so mike you want to uh take the uh lead on the introducing uh mark and kicking this podcast off sure this one's easy bela uh i think the whole thing is great and it speaks for itself so i think we should just get right to it so uh here we go hello folks this episode's guest is mark dwanzik um, a person that I met a number of years ago when uh, he was on the board of trustees at Clarkson University. And uh, I think that's where we initially met. And uh, he's got a great story, a great background, and I thought he'd be a wonderful guest for the podcast. So welcome, Mark. Thank you very much, Bela. Nice to see you. Yeah, nice to see you. Thanks. So let's go. Uh, if, you were, if you went to a cocktail party mm-hmm. and someone asked you, what do you do? How do you answer that question? Well, that's a that's a really good start. First question. Um, I like to build businesses and um, lead teams. Okay, good answer. And so I found different ways of doing that, and through us in the past uh, fifteen twenty years, a series of companies. And um, but I'm an engineer by training, so uh, it's funny. I saw my uh, uh, filed our taxes recently and. Our accountant put at the bottom occupation to put engineer, and I thought that was like, well, I haven't been an engineer for a long time. Yes, but um, so I like to build companies and lead teams. Okay, great. So let's go back to the early days. You grew up where? I actually uh, was born in upstate New York in Utica, New York, but grew up in the Boston area, uh, Metro Boston, um, Marlboro, four ninety five. So high school was sort of in the Boston public, area? yeah, public high school, and um, and then I went to uh, Tufts undergraduate, and then worked. Um, got my double E degree, uh, electrical engineering, and then worked for uh, on and off while I was finishing a master's at MIT. Okay. And so high school, let's just stick back to high school for a second. Actively involved in stuff, a, a quiet nerd in the corner, or Act- what does it say in your yearbook? Actively involved, uh, student council president, um, always involved in all sorts of student leadership things, uh, the student uh, representative on the school committee. 
you know, everything from, uh, you know, uh, uh, Homecoming King to, yes. you know, uh, just being active. Now, not overly social. I mean, not, 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 the, not the life of the party all the time, but certainly actively engaged in leadership at the school, at, at, in, in school things. Any uh, entrepreneurial endeavors while you were still in high school? No, no, nothing. Uh, well, actually, we started things under not entrepreneurial in the sense of businesses, but I mean, we even started. But we started something. Or, co- well, you know. we actually started something called Student Government Day, where we actually took over the city hall for a day as a bunch of high schools, wow. high school students, and we elected people amongst us, and that was became an annual thing. So that was, you know, I guess that was kind of an entrepreneurial thing to do for teaching students, my peers, about how the local government runs. Yes. So, so was that uh, pretty novel? Around yeah, I didn't. I didn't create it, but I was part of the first, you know, group of people who were involved in it, and then I carried it through. Oh wow! So yeah, that was. I guess that those kind of entrepreneurial things, you know. Oh, absolutely. Push, pushing that, pushing that, and um, you know, being a voc- being a being vocal on things like this uh, school committee as a student representative, yeah. things like that. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, everything we have in the world is a result of someone willing to try something absolutely. new. Absolutely right. Mm-hmm. You never try anything new, you, nothing, you make right. no progress. Right. Right. So entrepreneurship, at least in my mind, takes a broad definition. It's not uh-huh. just about building a business. It's yeah. all sorts of stuff. Yeah, my daughter gave me a bumper sticker because when they were little, we'd be driving around on Saturdays, and I'd, I'm spatially, um, I, I'm spatially uh, a little awkward, I'll put it that way. We'd always get lost. And I finally, but she gave me a bumper sticker and said, you know, I'm not, I'm not lost, I'm exploring. <laughs> so I do a lot of exploration and find new things to do. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. So a- after high school, uh, you said you went to Tufts? Went to Tufts undergraduate. Uh, engineering, Tufts is a great school at that time. It still is a great school, but great liberal arts education to complement the engineering. It's, that's where I learned to communicate, learned to write. Uh, was had a decent edu- edu- engineering, engineering education as well. Um, they were doing the things at the time, like the Reach toothbrush, if you remember that. That's the curved toothbrush mm-hmm. that was, because they had a, with the Tufts de- had a dental school and a medical school, so it was early in those kind of um, merging of engineering and uh, bio and medical and biomedical devices. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. And then after Tufts, what happened? So I went to work with a place called Draper Lab. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is in Cambridge. Sure. I'm very familiar with Draper Labs. And, uh, Sort of just a regular, I didn't know that about you. Regular engineering job. Um, uh, worked on things called fault tolerant computers. These are computers that were inherent that were built to be redundant. So if something failed, they would fix themselves. Or you know, three processors and one failed, the two others would pick up the slack. But then Draper has Draper's. Uh, if you're familiar with it, it's actually a not for profit company. So it's a spin out of. Uh, it was part of MIT during the Apollo era and became an independent lab during the Vietnam, Vietnam era. And uh, so Draper has this great ability to actually reinvest what we would consider profits back into R&D. So I started doing lots of independent little R&D projects. And those were pretty entrepreneurial, obviously within a big company, 2,000 employees, defense contract mostly, but created things like I built a neural network computer to first some interesting device. This is before neural networks. Well, this is like the second phase of neural networks being interesting, right? Now yes. they're in their fourth. Yes. But we actually, so we, I, would, I, would, I would propose projects internally and get them funded from an inter, with an internal budget and run a small team to build these really interesting new computer architectures. Wow. 
and it was all signal processing related. So in the, in the middle of all that, I um, also did a master's at MIT in aero. So I got my master's in aeronautic. Going so you're working full-time at Draper. Uh, actually, a little, little different. I am... Um, I convinced, so I had some other opportunities when I graduated from college, including Bell Labs and places that said, hey, we'll pay for you to go to, go, get, go, go to school full time. So I convinced Draper that's what they should do as a program. And then I convinced them that I should be the first person to do it. Oh. So they actually paid me to go to school full time to get my master's. But I still obviously did call it, think, think of it as, as lab work or, you know, I, I was always related to things I was doing at Draper. Yeah. So how many total years were you at Draper? I started, um, uh, so I graduated in 84 and I left in 93. So about nine or 10 years. Oh, okay. So that's yeah. a nice, yeah. nice long run. Yeah, 10 years. But that's, and actually I was thinking a lot about, um, as I, as I help mentor other, uh, entrepreneurs or coming out, young undergraduates, you know, should you go get a, should you go work in a regular bigger corporation a classic thing. I, I live in California and uh, in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley is so startup, 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 or, should, or, should, or is a bigger company with more structure a better place to start? It's always a trade-off. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on that? Because I, I think that's a topic that's come up in this podcast before, yeah. and it's certainly one that my co-host Mike and I think about when we're talking yeah. to our students right. about right. do a startup right away or yeah. go work for a big company sort of trip and stumble on their nickel, so to speak, right? and then start your own thing? What yeah, I mean, on? so I think the way you phrase it, though, a trip and stumble on their nickel doesn't have to be a negative thing, right? It can be, for me, it was, and I'm sure for most people, learning how just just basic processes, whether it's engineering or product design. How to get stuff done. How to get things done and how to work in a team. I think startups would be, I mean, unless you're one of the rare, very rare wildly fortunate people to find the right startup that can, you know, you can work, you know, the, the very few people who decide to even leave undergraduate school and do, do a startup. Um, it's really hard to, um, to be long-term successful at that. And so it's, you're just, you're pretty, you got to admit that you're pretty lucky to be successful at a startup right out of college. So I think um, encouraging uh, a, at least five years at a company at a very good structure, and it's about the structure. It's not about what the company does or, I mean, it's, hopefully it's in the area you want to work in, but it's, I think, uh, at least five years in a yeah. company structure is, is, it's sort of like a requirement. Yeah, I, I worked at GE Research when right. I got out of grad right. school, and I learned, when I got out of grad school, I didn't know how to do anything mm-hmm. except solve differential equations. Exactly right, right. <laughs> and at GE, I really learned how to get stuff done, how to mm-hmm. build stuff, how to work in a team, as you right. said. right. The, the challenge or the part you need to be careful about a little bit is making sure that you don't set up your lifestyle as such that you're now dependent upon this compensation that comes oftentimes uh, with working golden with a handcuffs. big company. And you get those handcuffs yeah, and you right. become a prisoner. Right. Because when you're at, rad, graduating from college, you don't have, you're used to living pretty meagerly, right. which works perfect for a startup. Yep. You go work for a big company for five years, and next thing you know, you got a fancy car yeah. and a big house and a big mm-hmm. payment, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you're trapped. Right. So you got to balance that. Yep. Yep. Um, it's uh, it's a so I actually that's what I did is I actually went out. I so after ten years of working, I decided to make a change, and um, thought I wanted to teach because I had I had been mentoring uh, younger uh, students out in the undergraduate and master's level out of um, the local schools in Boston <clears throat> and we do it through Draper lab. 
And uh, I was really enjoying working with students. So I said, I think I want to teach. I actually used the neural network computer that I built mm-hmm. and took it on a roadshow of sorts and wow. got myself into Stanford. And uh, to the, you know, when they were doing early days of learning algorithms and adaptive learning. And um, so I was nine years out of school, sort of, you know, nine years older than all the other new graduate students. And um, Stanford, uh, I got the opportunity to go to Stanford to do a PhD. And um, <clears throat> moved out. It was a really big change to go from East Coast, Cambridge, Massachusetts, to West Coast, Stanford, uh, Palo Alto area. Uh, and it was a, a, a it was a it was a major change. It was so it was a, let's we start over. It was a move, making that change was a uh, much more, much bigger change than I imagined it would be. From from what perspectives? <clears throat> so I. I knew it was going to be hard to go, quote, back to school, but I thought I had enough discipline. But the social um, integration was just way different. So I remember taking my office mate from Stanford home uh, to uh, home for dinner one night. And he thought, oh, this is cool. All your parents aren't home. And I was like, no, no, this is my house. <laughs> uh, and so no sense of, oh, this is just a different social, I mean, there are different levels of, yes. of expectations. So it wasn't lonely. It was just there wasn't a level of um, com- uh, camaraderie that, you know, the other 19-year-olds who were just out of, you know, <clears throat> whiz- whizzes at their previous institution were coming to Stanford for the first time to a graduate Well, degree. you're 10 years older than ten years everyone older else, than, right. and there's a big right. difference between 19 and 29. Absolutely, right. So, you know, not just, you know, I, already, I had owned, owned a condo in Cambridge, for instance, mm-hmm. still owned that, yes. right, was a landlord of that, right, just, but, you know, even like, oh, are these your dishes too? It's like, yeah, that's it. this is my this is my home, and so they they have no concept of that. Yeah. So that was really hard. I also um, so I took, took did all my classes and and started teaching as part of my PhD. And I love the intellectual work, but I really liked the, the work I did at MIT on my master's thesis was really interesting. And at Stanford, it was much more about um, doing a startup. And now, it, uh, what's the time horizon? So I w- I went to Stanford in ninety three. To ninety, so then, and I've been out there ever since. Yes, <clears throat> and so I got sort of um, because I was older and I could see what I wanted to do. That and I really came back to school so I could teach, and that wasn't the emphasis as much at Stanford, whereas MIT was very intellectually rigorous. And so I got um, I got bored with it. Mm-hmm. And classic Silicon Valley story. I. <laughs> knew this idea called voice over IP that putting voice on the internet was going to be a, was going to be something. And I was signal processing by train, you know, my, my skills were in signal processing. So I started working on, um, started doing consulting out of the garage literally because that was a place to work. Out of your condo? No, out of my garage in, in, um, in, so my condo was in Cambridge. Oh, I'm sorry. So house, the garage in California. And I was, remember asking someone, where should I put, you know, I need an office. And they're like, well, why don't you just do it in the garage? And I was like, oh, right. Duh. I guess I forgot where I was, (laughs) but it was really just make ends meet. It was just purely a, uh, it was starting a business purely because I had to make some money. Now I didn't, I still was doing Stanford. But this little garage consulting signal processing shop grew, and all of a sudden we're building telephones and voice over IP telephones, and we're building small PBXs, and and I grew it from there. Yeah, and and so it's interesting that in 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 sort of east of the Mississippi, the garage is a place to keep your car. 
exactly right. On the so, West Coast, a, a yeah. gr- gr- we, garages we, are not for cars. We can't put it. We actually can't put a car in our garage, right? It's because <laughs> it's, it's for starting your businesses, right? 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 Or just holding stuff. But yes. here, it's a necessity in the East Coast because you don't want your car, right? But you can leave your car outside in the driveway. Also, all, all, all winter it doesn't matter yeah. in California. Yeah, interesting yeah. cultural differences yeah. there. So, so, I, so I I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. So that morphs into a. So business. that morphed into. Uh, so I had one summer. I had you know seven people working in the garage. And, um, you know, we had a small, tiny house that we were renting, 800 square feet, one bathroom. It, it got a, it, the novelty wore off pretty quickly. Yes. Uh, we moved, obviously, uh, the operator. But we used to have our, comp, our meetings, including with customers, at our picnic table, right? Just really kind of fun outside. It was a classic way to build a business. Um, mo- migrated to downtown Mountain View. Grew it, um, started getting major contracts, starting doing, went from more service work, which was a, a classic cha- challenge of, is that, you know, service companies are completely different than product companies. So consulting work, uh, time materials, if you will, or fixed price contracts uh, for for doing, writing software or building hardware. We were building hardware at the time too. And uh, to, oh, we have some product ideas. And at the same time, uh, I had a one of the really uh, st- one of the students in my classes at Stanford sitting in the front row, always very attentive. I used to hire them to come work in the summer, and he said he wanted to go to China, and I said, "Yeah, I want to get there too." Uh, and I didn't realize he he's, he's Caucasian from Oakland, and he spoke fluent Mandarin, and so six months later, I sent him off to China with a check to build our China operation. And we grew a China office, an engineering office in China, and did so. We kept the high-level uh, design and uh, architecture fuel in in Mountain View, California. Uh, Low-level meaning uh, uh, hardware and software implementation, design, testing, and prototyping in China, and then we outsourced contract manufacturing in southern China. So I'm going to go back to the very first question I asked you: <clears throat> If you had to explain the product and service of this company. To somebody who just met at a cocktail party, how would you explain of that, that first company? Yes, uh, we built telephones. Uh, we we built telephones for the internet generation for the for the internet te- internet technology, telephones and um, and devices, including uh, so all sorts of devices for telecom using uh, IP, uh, meaning internet protocol or you know basically internet connectivity. Yes. So the idea, instead of a RJ11 cable, which is which plugs into the telephone wall, as an RJ45, and one of our devices we call the 1145, it connect it it, it actually adapted an 11, uh, an analog RJ11 cable to a Ethernet RJ45 cable, right? And it was based now those, they call those uh, ATAs, um, uh, but they're they're basically um, they're basically that you plug an analog phone into the internet. Yep. And this business grows to sort of what size? So we were probably doing um, just two or three million dollars a year, mm-hmm. but we had a couple of big purchase order contracts from um, uh, pretty major telecom providers. So you're selling <coughs> this to other telecom providers uh, who were we, then selling to the yeah. End so we, we 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 didn't have our name on any of these. Um, <clears throat> the, our biggest cust- well, our first major customer was actually a provider of hotel phones, like telephones you see in a hotel. <clears throat> You know, and, and really, those phones should have one button that just says "call the front desk." But in those days, 
you actually the hotel was actually a, money, a revenue generator for the the, ho- the phone was a hotel generator for the hotels because you could long distance and you need to make a business call and you didn't there was not cell phones and yep. you actually that was a revenue source you know give away the rooms and sell telephone service so they were putting as they're putting broadband or ethernet into these rooms they needed a voice over ip phone and we um, did this for the largest largest uh, distributor largest uh, manufacturer if you will uh, of, tel- of hotel phones under their name and we won internet tele- internet telephony product of the year award wow and I said, oh, that's pretty good. And um, somehow, I forget exactly how, but it leaked out that we were the people who, and I say leaked it, it wasn't us, but someone else, that we were the people who did this design. So the number two provider of, of, tele- of, internet, of phones in the hotels called us. And then the number three. And all of a sudden, we were in that space. Um, so the breakthrough product is we designed this small PBX, a tiny little, it's a switch that... Yep. That lets you, you know, connect uh, in a. Ho- this was for a hotel. Connect, you know, a hundred different rooms and and use only four or five outside lines, and re- you know now call forwarding routing. This was all stuff that you had to do it mechanic or electromechanically before. And this was for about a hundred hundred size hundred room hotel size that kind of nature, <clears throat> and the lowest cost option on the and you know in the market was like $12,000 for this device. And we were able to do it with open source software and some pretty inexpensive FPGAs for about $150, you know, uh, FOB out of Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And I said, wow, that's a pretty good little product. That's a nice margin. And uh, we, uh, I realized, so I started figuring out how to price it. I said, oh, okay, we'll price it at $5,000, half the price. Yeah. And people couldn't believe we were making that che- that cheaply. They were like, it can't be $5,000. And I mean, the thing I like to help people, because now we all assume all these functions are built in. <clears throat> One of our customers said, but that doesn't include the voicemail, does it? <laughs> and I said, oh, no, voicemail's extra, which was, you know. And I pulled out a USB stick. Those were brand new at the time, right? Yes. Oh, yeah, voicemail's this option. That's $2,000, right? Because <laughs> you could just make it up. Yeah. So uh, one of our, our – so our we were doing a couple, a couple of major companies we had we're shipping products to. Um, this was going to be under our name, but I realized scaling the company to the next step was going to be different than just doing design, product design work or, you know, white label design. And, and we still own the IP in those, but getting it out to the market is a different, different, different business completely. So one of our largest customers for this little PBX uh, said, hey, um, they realized how much money we were going to be making off of them. And they just, and I made, it was what I wanted to do at the time. So we actually sold the whole company to them. Okay. So we did an exit by not wanting to scale to the next level. Yes. And it was a it was you know, it was rewarding for everybody. And how it. big a business was it when when this acquisition? Probably about four or five million dollar of revenue. Okay. Uh and um uh and it was but that the company that bought us was actually the a large the large, the world's largest provider of broadband services to the hotel industry. Because they figure, okay, now we'll also own the, the devices. Right. Classic service company versus a product company, and um, you know everybody. You, you, you hear that's that's a that's an awkward cultural mix from a tech from a business point of view. Yeah, it just did not work out. I mean, we, it worked out financially for everyone, but um, it was not a good fit for the. You can't service companies think differently than product companies. So when you went to Stanford, you sort of went there, I want to get my PhD, I want to go teach. Yep. 
and you end up starting and running this business. Yep. What, what, was there a moment in time yeah. where you said, this is what I want to do, yeah. I, I do want to start a business, or did it just sort of happen? No. Was it a no, conscious sorry. decision or I unconscious? Had, I, so, yeah. yeah I, so I started the business because I needed to make ends meet. So it's financial requirement. Need to figure out how I can leverage talents. So I'm not going to make a lot of money mm-hmm. being a resident uh, or you know a teaching assistant, right? Uh, raising a family and doing what I want to do. So it was it was a necessity to build to grow a consulting business and and I had had been working for ten years, so I knew how to build a reasonable you know to make to make sure I had a good uh, just family had an income. Yes. Yeah. So when you're at, at Stanford during this period of time, you're married. Yep. Children. So n- newly married with kids on the way, and yes. Okay. So all of a sudden, got four a family of four at home, and you know, being a, being a teaching assistant, it's not going to cut it. Yes. You have additional responsibilities that help motivate you. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a that's a uh, talk about not. It's sort of like Cortez burning the ships, but it's you know you don't realize you burned your own ships when you <laughs> do that, right? <clears throat> but I did have the aha moment when I we were doing some work under contract for Microsoft and I had to get something into Stanford and I had a, a meeting that Bill Gates was coming down sometime later that week. <laughs> and I just thought this is a no brainer. This is what I love to do. I'm up late at night working on my, in my, in my company. Yes. And I don't really, I, I mean, I don't really care about making sure I got the problem set to the students for the next week. Right. I mean, Obviously, we did both, but it was like that was like this is not what I want to do. You figured out what was what really drives you, yeah, and internally. I yeah, and actually, you could just do it almost by, um, you know, sort of like almost uh, measure your time like a budget. Okay, well, I'm spending all my time doing this. This must be what I love, yes. and I'm fitting in everything else. Just like you know, okay, you get the dishes done because you have to do it, but you know, cooking is the fun part of it. Right? I, I think the interesting part of that is that that, and I've seen this with my children. See it with myself. Each individual figures that out for themselves, often at different moments in their lives. Uh-huh. It's not like every. It's not like when everyone is seventeen. Mm-hmm. All right, I know what I want to do for the rest of my life. No. To some extent, we expect people to do that because we're sending them off to college. Yeah, and and so some of it do it on blind faith. And but it, it and when you have that moment, where it's clear for you that that I can make my passion and I can also make my living at it and yep. provide for my family. Right. That's a wonderful, wonderful place to be. Yeah. Right. That, and it's, it's, it's actually, as you just said, provide for your family. That's the entrepreneurial part of it. So I enjoyed my work at Draper. I really like being an engineer. I love the work and I was making good money. It was all fine. Um, and, but recognizing, Oh, I can actually build, I, I built a small company. I can do it. I can, take it to the next step and I know how to go get customers and I understand the market trends. Yes. That's really, um, really, that's, that's enlightening. The other thing I've learned though since then is there's other opportunities. In your, it's not just once. It doesn't just happen once, right? It's not just, oh, here was the mark, here's the, the, the demarcation point in my career. It's like, oh, there's been lots of those. Right. And you, and I can't tell if it's because you get, I get more, if I get bored with certain things or I just get, better educated or more mature and like, oh, look at other things I can do. Yes. So when we met at the Clarkson board, for example, I hadn't been on a board of trustees at a college and I really loved helping higher ed. Yes. So you sell the company uh-huh. and uh, did you, were your hand, hands tied for some period of time? They were. They were. And um, we had negotiated a pretty good agreement for me that um, they were going to pay me salary. Um, <clears throat> and I 
and but and and they they really they had to get it was a good severance package if they if they decided to terminate me but i got so bored that um i actually quit after a while and so yeah. d- gave up a severance package said i'm this is what i can't do yeah you're and not the, the first person i've heard that from yeah i actually stuck stuck i stuck with i stuck with it for a while and then finally we had a meeting of the executive team at this company that purchased us and I said, guys, I, I gotta go. This is not. A, yeah. And and they all put in their ten dollars. They said, okay, you know, Bill won the bet. We had a pool going <laughs> of when you would when you would be leaving. So, um, so uh, decided to. In the middle of that, though, was um, uh, doing other things and just. Um, so I just, it was. I could tell I was getting just just like I was at Stanford. I was like, I'm now I get distracted with other things. Yeah. So, so what happened next? Where'd your so journey go? Two things happened next. One is when I sold the company, I really took some time off, and my wife's family has a place in the Adirondacks, beautiful Adirondack camp on a uh, middle of near, near Saranac Lake, Paul Smith's gorgeous, gorgeous house. Call it a, they, we call them camps. <clears throat> no road access, so you got to take a boat. Mm-hmm. And beautiful place to spend a summer. I didn't leave the didn't leave the lake all summer, but after like you know three months, I realized. Um, I can't really do email here because there's there's just a dial-up modem and I still am working and you know I'm still on the payroll. Yes. <clears throat> so I actually uh, convinced some of my friends in Silicon Valley that I didn't really understand this TCP/IP stuff and internet and asked them to come out and help me build a network for the lake so I could get access to the it's the internet and email when I was at camp. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's sort of my Tom Sawyer approach of hey, do you know anything about painting a picket fence? <laughs> And uh, for two or three years in a row, for a, a week or so, they, a bunch of my friends would come out and they'd bring suitcases of supplies from Fly, Fry's Electronics, and and we would cook and have a fun time um, to build this network. So that's one thing I did, and we built the network for the lake, and um, I became a very popular guy at the cocktail parties. I also became the least popular guy when things aren't going well, but all of a sudden <laughs> we provided internet to people who didn't have access to it in the summer. Wow. And this and is wired or wireless? This was wireless. So my, our, our place was, and we had a combination of different types of radios and frequencies. And we, you know, I, we, I knew about that stuff from my signal processing background, how to mesh these things together. But so I was like four miles, six hops from the beginning of the network. And everybody else, I was at the end of the network, right? Mm-hmm. So I wasn't going to give it to anyone behind me anyway. But, you know, yes. I had to connect everyone else first. <clears throat> so that was interesting. And I said, wow. People are willing to pay for this. And people started telling me this changed my life for our summer because I don't have to go back to Chicago for a meeting I don't, or a presentation. Now, this is still early days. We're getting one megabit, but it's still better than a dial-up modem. Yes. Um, and I thought, I said, maybe there's something here. And um, uh, we built a network and it was, it just, I built a little company around it. It wasn't, wasn't meant to be profitable. It was just to make sure I could provide, in, in, get an internet service. <clears throat> and provide it to my neighbors. I also started charging people on a per byte basis, and that's the idea of you know now we're used to the overage charges and and it was like oh it's only a penny a megabyte mm-hmm. and they were like oh that's nothing so an email cost you you know four cents yeah oh, that's easy but then when they'd want to watch a movie <laughs> all of a sudden it's ten dollars to do it to do a gigabyte yes right? so. Um, it was actually a pretty interesting way, way to, to monetize it. 
again, it wasn't a, it wasn't on scale of anything. It was 30 or 40 houses and, but it was more interesting. And again, it was, um, so I did that. And then same time back, back in California, I had been helping this other company who was doing this, um, the idea of merging, uh, uh, we're getting into the conference call space. Mm-hmm. This was, you know, I mean, you've been on conference calls and pin codes and how ridiculous they are and how it's really impossible to make. A, I mean, it's still, it's still not very com- compared to how the rest of the world has progressed. Right. It still seems right. Not very much changed from 20 years ago. Right. So this company had an idea, the startup had an idea of what if we could call everyone who's going to be on the conference call ahead of time, like just three minutes ahead of time and blast out, sort of like the joke of the day, but here's the conference call number of the day mm-hmm. and leave them a voicemail. Here's your dial-in number and here's your pin code. And after I, I sat some time, I said, well, why not just and press one to join? And they hadn't put that together. And so we actually started, so we've actually built a company around that. And I was just helping them. I was just actually hanging out, not getting paid. Just, it was interesting. It was mm-hmm. fun work. And they um, asked me to step up and be the CEO. And um, we, had an angel investor and we grew it into a little company called Velo. And, um, it was the conference that calls you. The idea is you go to Outlook, set up a meeting, everybody's phone rings when the conference starts and you press one to join one simple number to call. Uh, you didn't have to remember any call, just remember just because it was like, okay, if Bailey, once you, when you knew that, when you dialed that number, it's like, oh, Bailey's supposed to be in this conference call. If I, if I dialed the number and I was supposed to be somewhere else, put me in a different conference room. Yes. It won all sorts of great Silicon Valley, you know, accolades. Best, you know, uh, one of the headlines said, um, you know, cell phone rings in a crowded auditorium, booze, fifty cell phone rings, hooray! <laughs> <laughs> because I did a, I did a live conference calls at, at a demo, and um, so it turns out though, no one's willing to pay for that. It's uh, I heard on one of your earlier podcasts. Oh, great idea! I love it. And getting people to getting people to monet, getting to monetize that. Conference calls are, you know, they're at free. the time, now they're free. At the time, they were, you know, two cents a minute, yes. you know, and now they, then they got down to, and then we were, our, our costs were, were basically free. It was 0.7 cents a minute, to, mm-hmm. for, but we couldn't, but chart, getting to that to scale. So we actually didn't, I didn't learn the lesson, and when we closed that company, we restarted it with the same IP and tried to do it again, because uh-huh. this thing called the iPhone came out. Yes. <clears throat> And so we built it for the iPhone, and same thing. As an app, it. basically, it was an app with a. But it had, but it had a, still had to have a backend server. So we right. we put our server. This was early days of Amazon Cloud. We put it in AWS. So no more special hardware, just cloud mixing. Oh, it was great piece of technology, easy to use. I mean, really, you could set up a group call just like you do a group text now. And so I used it all the time for, my, for family calls. Hey, let's just have a family call. Yes, every phone rings. And especially if you want to just coordinate who's picking up what, simple one button and four people's phone ring. Really great. Couldn't make it into a business. Mm-hmm. And now since then, there's been Uber conference. There's also, I mean, every couple of years, someone comes out with, oh, I've got this great new thing. And still, it's a difficult business case. Yes. Because those conference call companies make money on, you know, five-year commitments with Wells Fargo Bank. <clears throat> so it's, you know, billions of minutes at of low cost. Yes. And it's hard for a small company, <clears throat> small company to break into that. Yeah. But I didn't learn my lesson the first time. I tried to do it again, and that. So both we big success from a technology point of view, but I'm not a financial success. Yes, yes. And 
what happens after that? <laughs> so, because the story's not over, I don't think. So, um, I'm at the at our summer house in the uh, that uh, my wife's family's summer house, and people hear about this guy who built this internet on the lake uh, in the Adirondacks, and uh, at the same time, I was just in the right place at the right time. <clears throat> the same time, Obama's. Um, uh, America um, Reinvestment uh -huh. ARA, the Reinvestment Act, was putting money in for infrastructure and get broadband to rural America. And the local phone company had received a pretty big grant. Uh, it was 80% grant, 20% uh, loan to build out broadband in rural New York, right near our summer house. <laughs> and they asked me to join the board. And uh -huh. I said, oh, that'll be fun, join the board of directors. Uh, and after three after the first after the first board meeting, we realized the company was in trouble. And uh, four or five months later, they asked me to be the CEO. So this was in rural New York. <clears throat> I live in Mountain View, California, but I thought it would be a really fun project to take on. It just was. I thought it'd be really interesting. A uh, hundred and ten year old telephone company, turning it around. Uh, it was not financially. When I joined, it was not financially viable. It was it was it was in financial trouble. Yeah, and um, <clears throat> so I said, "This is just like a startup, though. We have a market because people, you know, there's no people don't have broadband. You sort of have a monopoly. We actually, yeah, we actually <laughs> it's better than we, a we market. Had to, we had to be careful not to say the word monopoly, but we actually, yeah. once you built it, you had a monopoly. Yes, that's how the telephone company got got to be a monopoly. That's how right? it works? <clears throat> but and and the and you needed government subsidy though because the local incumbents, Verizon or Time Warner, for the cable. They wouldn't. They, you couldn't invest this kind of capital to get, you know, forty dollars. If and it has to do with how many houses per mile and things like right. that. You couldn't make a business case to make it work. But if you can get eighty percent of your capital subsidized, you can make a business. So I said it was like a startup. We have a market. We had the capital, courtesy of the federal government, and um, we just had to change the culture. And we, you know, we just had to get the get the get the get the airplane off the ground. So we, I went in and we had to make some cultural changes at the company. Um, then I remember sitting in a presentation that Governor Cuomo, who was very progressive on this, he was talking about how he's going to provide broadband for, for New York State. And he came out with the most innovative proposal in the country. And, but I remember looking at his presentation and he had, a, he had one of these grayscale color maps of who has broadband and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. And in our territory... He had this as the same color as Manhattan. This is in this is in like you know, not even in Potsdam. This is a suburb of Potsdam, <laughs> New York. And I turned to our CTO. I said, "Wow, he's got the colors wrong. We're the same color as Manhattan." And I said, "Oh my gosh!" And look at all this white space in between. And Cuomo had just announced a major uh, subsidy program for for expand, making sure every New Yorker had broadband. And I said, let's double down, and I'm in. And we, we grew that thing. Uh, we went from 250 subscribers, broadband, to when I left as CEO to about, I was about 6,000 now. Uh, the company, I'm still on the board. The mm -hmm. company has still growing, adding, uh, adding several thousand customers a, a year. And it was a financial turnaround as well. Yes. So the, the, the surprise call I got, which was, I got a call from an, a number at MIT because uh, I recognized the exchange from being there. I was like, and it was someone from the Sloan School and the business school. And they said, um, 
hey, we hear what you're doing over in, in Nickelville, New York. Will you come and do a case study for the Sloan? For the, and I, I thought this was a prank call. Like, why does it, you know, MBA students at MIT want right, to hear about Nickelville right. Telephone? But it really was a good story because it really changed the economic fabric of the community. And it was, an, it was a financial turnaround. And it was about building a company yeah. and the leadership skills you need to do that. I think there's so many parallels between, you know, broadband service and the electrification of Absolutely. the country. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's it changes just, it, people's lives. So the 1932 presidential election was really won. Roosevelt won because he believed in rural electrification. He yeah. said, if we give people electricity, remember, this is when electric companies were called power and light because that's what they did. They didn't, they weren't. They weren't, you know, they weren't powering your toys and everything right. else. But if you give people electricity, then they can have refrigeration. In rural, rural, rural America, then they can have refrigeration. If they have rural refrigeration, they can have fresher food. If they have fresher food, they'll be healthier. Yeah. I actually made the corollary recently. So Sears, which is now going uh, in bankruptcy, I didn't realize Sears started because of the Rural Mail Delivery Act. That Sears started, well, first it was Montgomery Ward, but Sears quickly yes. followed it. Oh, now everyone in America has a post office, has a, has a postal box, and they can get anything delivered there. They can get anything delivered. And right. So Sears, if you know what the old catalogs, you could order anything from yep. Sears. I remember those very clearly as a kid. So that I mean, was that the big, was and that was the big, the big catalog that would come twice a year, Inch and then a special, Chris, yeah. special Christmas one, too. Yep. But that, so the corollary of broadband, and now it's being Amazon is serving these, these customers yes. for shopping. Um, and we can talk about the social demographic, uh, the social economic issues from that. But um, it's no different than rural postal delivery in the late 1800s yes. and rural electrification in 1930s. So it's the next, I mean, broadband is a necessary. It's not just a, in fact, I got interviewed recently of like, um, this is a lifestyle choice. I'm like, this is not a lifestyle choice. I said, I said, do you think clean water is a lifestyle choice? I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, if you want to be off the grid, fine, but you still have to have clean water. And so broadband is the equivalent of, you can't, denying people not having broadband at home is like not having yeah. access to information. Yeah. So I did that until, um, so I turned that company around and we then raised some private equity money. And um, I'm, that was about a year ago I left as the CEO on the board. I remained on the board and um, taking a year to kind of figure out what I want to do next. Wow. Wow. Really fun. So the... Um one of the one of the themes that I sort of see here is this is this notion of there's a need. Mm -hmm. You have some sort of need, right? Whether it's mm -hmm. providing for your family or you have a curious mind and you need uh -huh. to fill it uh -huh. with stuff, right? But there's also this there's this clear ability to recognize an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. It's this opportunity recognition. Mm -hmm that I think really is the foundation for building successful businesses. Absolutely. Right. It's very rarely an invention. Mm -hmm. You invent something and then I got to go try to find a problem to solve. It's right. you find the problem. Right. You recognize the opportunity. Right. And then you build the business. Yeah. I mean, in this case, for instance, the, at the lake, I had a problem myself. I had to get an email, but it was, so I was just like, listen, I'm building this because I want to get access to the internet. Right. right. And now we have a hundred megabit connection to our camp. Like this, this is really great to have wireless internet. To the camp. Yeah. But um, it's sort of finding the holes in the linebackers, right? And it's like, here's, here's where we go to throw the ball. And that's where we're going. Um, yes. But uh, not actually, so I don't know if you said finding, but I haven't out, been out seeking for those issues. They just show up and it becomes, it's so obvious to me when they're there. Like, oh, you should just press one to join a conference call. Why leave a message? 
just press one and you'll be connected to your yes. to your phone. Those are kind of, so those are the things that those are serendipitous moments that um, and you have to be prepared and you have to have the skills to do it. So um, you, you actually have to take action. You have to take action. You just can't have the idea. Right. right. And you, you have, have to have be able to, uh, you know, um, you have to be, a, someone told me once, so if, if, you know, I was at Stanford and they said, oh, if you want something done, have Mark do it because I had 10 years experience on everyone. But um, it's about knowing how to execute. And then, but finding those opportunities is exactly it. Yeah. And those opportunities just show up serendipitously, frankly. They're just, but you got to be aware of them. You got to be. You got to recognize that it's an opportunity. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Right. That's that's yeah. a that's yeah. a that's a skill. Yeah, it's a it's, or it's a, a, or it's it's, a gene that got turned on when you were yeah, born. Yeah, it's it's, it's actually observation, right? It's being observant. Mm-hmm. Someone told me once that I'm not a micromanager, but I'm a micro observer. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so you're looking around. To, I'm taking who, a who year. Knows, who knows what's going to happen? I'm taking next? a year and enjoying um, uh, work work hard for a long time. Yeah, we're fortunate to now that I'm we don't uh, that I can take some time off financially. Yeah. And um, enjoying, um, enjoying just uh, connecting with people, and not even looking, not not necessarily formally looking for something, just enjoying taking a break, waiting for that serendipitous moment. Yeah, and they'll show up, right? So let's talk a little bit about. Obviously, you get you're giving back. You're doing mentoring. Yeah. You've talked about mentoring even mm-hmm. in your early days yeah. when, when uh-huh. you whether it was high school students yeah, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you've served on the board of. Uh, trustees at Clarkson University. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You're on the board of trustees at Small Paul, Paul Smith's Smith. College. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, so, talk a little bit about sort of how that impacts your life, and sort of the things that drive you to do those types of things. Yes. Yeah, so, I I remember when we had the kids were little. We used to teach them: the more you give, the more you get. It's just, a, but I actually, so I don't, I don't give looking for something in return. But it's so fulfilling and rewarding to to be able to give my time to something that may not may maybe I don't understand what the impact will be. Mm-hmm. I mean, it certainly doesn't have any financial. I don't have any financial expectations of impact. And it's just uh, I got raised. Our, our, our my parents uh, raised us with this idea of you're here to give and serve. Yes. And I believe if you can give and you if you're you're here to serve people. And you love what you're doing, you don't have to worry about anything. Mm-hmm. That things will just happen. Now, you also have to, as you said, you have to find those serendipitous opportunities. And um, whether it's exploit them or be assertive into them, but you got to capitalize on them. Yes. So either capitalize with a little c or capitalism, capital, as in um, capitalist, capitalistic, capitalism, um, then um, then you will be a successful entrepreneur. Yeah. There's other ingredients, like you got to have tenacity and you can't give up and you got to have a state of mind that lets you do these things. Um, but uh, it's more about, I find it just the reward is giving. And if I can help, that's just tremendous. Yeah. As somebody once pointed out to me earlier in my career, they said, Bela, you got to make significant deposits before you can make a withdrawal. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was, that was good advice. Yeah. And it's interesting because I often, because of the things I've done, I often get people who call me up who, who have just retired or semi-retired and they say, I'd like to go work with a company and mentor a company. And I'd say, great. And, and then, you know, the the second sentence I hear is, well, I need this compensation and I need these many stock options. And it doesn't work that way. Yeah, no, no. This is relationship based. Absolutely. You know, and a relationship is based upon you making contributions or deposits 
right? And Absolutely. then other things will happen. Yeah. No, in fact, in fact this, um, I'll, it's a funny story if we have time. So when I was working, helping this conference call, before it was a conference call, it was just to leave a voicemail. Yes. I was helping them, and um, the lead angel investor called me up. He said, listen, I, I, he called me up on a Saturday, and I didn't even know I had my phone number. He said, I just want to know, what's our severance package with you? And I was like, severance package? I'm not even getting paid. Like, <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And I said, gee, I'm really sorry. I didn't realize I must be disappointing you. Right. Did we take this in the wrong direction? And he said, no, no, no. I, I, wanna, I need to clean up a couple other people, and I want to offer them the same package that you have. I said, I'm not even an employee. <laughs> so you can offer that package easy. <laughs> he, he thought, so, so the pack, I, I was work, helping them for yes. three to six months without, I didn't have any expectation. Yes. And I recently had a job opportunity come up and I said, no, I, I don't really, not interested in doing anything right now. But it was an area that I had some expertise in. I, and it was in, in rural broadband. And I said, you know, I'm happy to come visit you and just tell you what I know. And I said, I'm not looking for a consulting job. And they're like, they didn't believe me. They thought for sure there was a, a catch. A catch. I'm like, no, seriously. I mean, if you pay for my plane, but if you don't want to, I'll still come out and see you. Yeah. Um, so it's, and that, that, and if you do that authentically, I mean, you can't, that can't be a shtick. It's got to be absolutely from the heart. You got to do it because you love it. Yeah. That's it. Because yeah. people can see through that. But there's no shtick. It's just do it. So besides loving it and getting a tremendous amount of internal satisfaction uh-huh. out of being on these boards of trustees right. of colleges yeah. and universities and mentoring folks. Yeah. What's, what's, is there another great thing that has, that has given you back other than that sort of satisfaction? Oh, so, well, part of it is I learn a ton from everybody. Yeah, so let's talk about that. So I get, to, I get to meet all sorts of people. That are not normally in your circle. That wouldn't, certainly wouldn't be in my circle in Silicon Valley. It wouldn't be in my circle in technology, in mm-hmm. engineering. Yes. What do you mean my circle in businesses, right? It's just out of, so, and I learn from them. I mean, it's just, it's, I think it's fascinating to learn from people just not 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 intentionally not like i'm going to some not not to hear their story but just by doing that i learn a ton yeah i think that's interesting because lots of times the people that are in within our own circle we all have very similar life experiences so yeah. in many ways you, you doing things like this that are bring you into different circles is really important because you learn so much in that observing that diversity in life experience absolutely yeah and and the way other people think about problems and the way they absolutely. approaches yep. right and i think that's a that's a great takeaway yeah. from getting yourself involved in these other things uh-huh. that are sort of outside your normal circle and the other part that i get out of it is when i see um sort of why i wanted to start teaching is when i see if i'm mentoring or helping a board or helping do something and i see that they get it and now can do something on their own or mm-hmm. something I've sort of taught them or mostly role model, not, not even here's the way to do this. It's just, and it happens a lot, certainly with boards and committees. Like, yes. Here's how we're going to do this. And it's like, Oh, and so when, it's very rewarding as you know, from teaching when you can teach someone how to do yes. something and it, not doing it in a formal structure here, we're meeting on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 10 AM. It's by role modeling it. That's really and you see people's, you see individuals or you see companies or you see um, nonprofits excel. It's really fun. Do, do you think you still might like to teach at some point? Uh, I think I would like to teach at some point, yeah. I think, okay. I, think I would be, um, you know, be fun to, to, to do that. I think whether it's, you know, higher ed's changing dramatically. <clears throat> I don't think there's going to be a lot of roles for we need you to teach this course 
on Tuesdays from two to four. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be different. So what, teaching might the what the definition of what you're implying teaching may be completely different. Yeah, even, I, I, even I, three I, or five years from now. I agree. It's the the, the role of the. Uh, Professor standing up in front of the classroom is going to change drastically yeah. and is changing drastically. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, I think the role can still be just as rewarding and quite frankly, it may even be more rewarding because yes. it's going to be sort of a different level and quality of interaction that you're going to have with the students. And the students, and the students aren't going to be uh, regularly 19 to 22-year-olds who are looking to learn a specific subject they might be more of your peers right. who want to learn something else or, you know, just it may, it may be very informal. It may, it may not be very formal. It may be very informal, but, uh, structured, but informal. Yes. That? So this summer, uh, for the first time, I got to experience what's <laughs> called Boys Weekend. <laughs> yes, that's right. So yeah. this is something that you've been doing for a number of years. And it, it really uh, was remarkable in many, many ways. So can you talk about sort of how you started that? So that was the, for that. So you're talking, but that's actually how we started building the network uh-huh. at the lake. I would say to my, again, my, my Tom Sawyer, Hey, anyone know how to paint a fence? Gee, I'm not really sure. Am I holding the paintbrush the right way? And um, convincing three or four of my good friends in Silicon Valley to bring suitcases full of routers that with, we load open source software on them. And um, that became a regular thing we did in the, in the fall. And uh, it's, it's just grown so that I do this every year in the fall. We call it Boys Weekend, but it's, you know, I don't like the whole sexist nature of that. It's just, it's about um, men in somewhere between 25 and 75. There's no other, there's no, it's just people who we ha- who happen to know. Yes. And you have to have the right mindset. You have to be the right. So there's, um, now you're going to, now there's going to be people who's like, how come I've never been invited to Boys Weekend? But there's a, so we, I invite about 75 people, and about 25 come. And because we don't have a road, you actually have to make a commitment to come to the camp, to our house for the, for the weekend. Yes. And um, two things about that. One is everybody who comes, they get, so I, we actually mentioned your perspective because you were new. Um, <clears throat> you don't know what to expect, so I say the only thing you can't bring is an agenda. Don't bring an agenda. We don't have any other. There's no set things we do. There's no, we do have a meal together. Yes. And that's really nice in the evening, and someone cooks. It's, we all share the cooking and the work, and it's a beautiful house. It's, it's really exceptional. We're very privileged to have it. Um, but some people go swimming. Some people go hike the mountains. Some people want to read. Some people have work to do. They have to get on their laptop for a couple hours. Um, they meet new people. Some people come back all the time. Some people are gone for a couple of years, and they come back. They get to see old friends. But it's a way for, the, for everyone to disconnect from their everyday life and sort of regenerate, not intentionally sharpening their song, but don't realize how they yep. mentally resharpen it, sharpen their song. And the comments we, I hear from everyone, no matter who is, I mean, everybody comes back like, wow, I'm so glad I got to do that. You know, they're, they're gracious in their appreciation to me, but it's, I, don't, I do it because it's really great for me. I love it. Yes. And um, to encourage people to take a break, maybe that's, that's a, to me, that's like a teaching thing, right? Just get off the treadmill and come do something like this mm-hmm. and make a break and make the commitment to do this is really fun. Yep. Um, and the other thing they get is the, I actually didn't realize this until I started doing these, the variety of people, I, I guess I have a lot of eclectic relationships because there's, yeah, maybe there's some tech people, but they're mostly people who know me through all sorts of 
there's right. East Coast, West Coast. From all, you know, this yes. year we had a couple of people who couldn't come because there was a hurricane in North Carolina. Um, but they all come up and f- find a way to get to upstate New York into the Adirondacks and come for. It used to be Thursday, maybe Friday to Sunday. Now it's sort of Wednesday to Monday, and people. <laughs> one, there was one Tuesday to Tuesday this year, so um, it's it's a really great opportunity. Yeah, and well, I'm very lucky to have. Uh, I I enjoy it so much. It's just a wonderful opportunity for me to um, see friends, acquaintances, but people who have a. Uh, who it's you have to have a certain personality to fit in and be willing to expose yourself to new things and talk and be open and be. Again, there's not. It's not a. It's not a. It's not a drunken weekend with a bunch of guys watching football. It's just a way to get together. We don't really have a TV, so we just kind of hang out and yep. be together. No, it, it was my experience was wonderful, and it. It's sort of as as you were describing it. I was thinking about actually the thing we talked about just before I asked you about it, which is this notion of exposing yourself to or engaging yourself in activities that are sort of outside of your normal circle. Yeah, you're the only person there I knew. Yeah, that's interesting. Right. right. So it's right. sort of okay. I'm gonna. Yeah. I I don't know what to expect. Right. I don't know where I'm getting into. Right. But I'm curious enough, and I'm I'm confident enough. Yeah. In right. many ways, right? I have that. And everybody of, who comes has those same feelings. They may not. Oh, I don't know who Bailey is, but right. if Mark's invited him, he's probably he's gonna fit in here fine, right? I mean, this you right. know, just and now there's some people who it finds out that wasn't a good fit, but it's most people come with this. Hey, I'm gonna meet people. Right. I'm gonna broaden my horizons. Yeah. So it's just like joining a board on a on a. I was on a board of trustees for a hospital for a period of time. Uh-huh, right. I knew nothing about healthcare and hospitals right, right, other than being right, a patient. Right. And right. I learned so much about right. taking that risk and saying, "Okay, gee, I'm really gracious that you guys invited me to join, and I'd, I'd love to do it." And I learned a lot of stuff. Yeah. So it's yeah. it's taking it's a great those, privilege that I can do that. It's wonderful. I, I enjoyed yeah. it more than as much as everyone does. Yeah. It's it's a it's a great thing that you do. Thank you. So let's start wrapping this up here. We've been at it for, for oh quite gosh. a bit. Yeah. Um, so if you, I have two questions. Sure. Let me ask the deeper one first. What drives Mark? So on the uh, at the first layer, it's giving and feeling feeling like I'm here to. Uh, of service, I, th- I forget one of your interviews recently. Someone who said he believed he was at a calling, mm-hmm. and I think you talked about servant leadership. But he had a calling to do this. Yes. And I'm, uh, I'm a big believer in just how can I give. And was that instilled by your parents? Do you think? I think it's core value that I didn't realize until my father passed away about a year ago, and uh, just early, early this year, so in January, and. When you and um, uh, he was in hospice at home, and you know you start thinking about where your values came from, and but he was always about giving and never, you know, I didn't have an entrepreneurial upbringing of, and it was wasn't about how much money you make. Never worried about how much money we made. I mean, uh, we we provided for us, sure. there's no, but we never worried about it. We didn't talk about it. It's just it wasn't about making money, and even things I do now, I don't, you know, that's. If anything, in terms of my entrepreneurship, I don't worry about how much money I'm making. And some people think that's a deficit in terms of, you know, we want to hire someone who's going to go not just drive revenue, but drive profits. And I, I, I drive, I build things because I, I, I build companies or I lead companies because it's my way to give to either the shareholders or the, or mostly it's the community, including the employees. Um, so that's the super that's the that's what drives me mm-hmm. to do these things mm-hmm. 
The other part that drives me is I um, learned early on because I actually have an immune deficiency. That was, was childhood. I was very ill as a, as a child, and um, I'm actually very fortunate to be alive at this age. And so I am. Um, you talked about serendipity and finding these opp- opportunities. I live every day just enjoying the serendipity that shows up. And so it's about what drives me is you use the word curiosity, but maybe it's more just about enjoying things Mm -hmm. and taking advantage. Uh, There's not a day. I mean, literally every day I'm just so happy to be here and be relatively healthy and be able to do this. Um, You probably read Seth Godin's book, um, purple cow, purple cows. Mm -hmm. It's the idea that there's lots of brown cows out there. When you see a purple cow, it's a remarkable car. So you mark, so you remark to people and you want to be a remarkable company. I, I was thinking about it on the drive down here today. I was like, you know, it's not just to have a remarkable day every day. Like every couple of hours are remarkable. And I make sure I maximize that. So part of what drives me is um, giving it all so I can make even have more remarkable moments. And that's just um, fun. Wow. And I, if I can inspire that to the to staff, that's how you get a team to really, that's how you get a lake network built yes. right from people yes. who otherwise um, wouldn't take come out 12 hours to figure out where we are in the lake and so you can you can inspire teams to do that yeah wow that was that was wonderful um that was fabulous what you just said and uh-huh. i mean it really yeah i'm, I'm not uh, i'm having trouble thinking right because uh-huh. because it moved me so much I think it's a wonderful time to end this podcast. Great. great, great way to end it. Thank you very much, Mark, for taking the time to do this and sharing your insights well, and your thoughts. Baylor, thank you for doing this. And it's, it's important work what you're doing here. And so um, thank you for taking the time and effort to do these. Thanks. Great. Thanks a lot. And having that conversation. You know, one of the great things that I've experienced in, in us doing this podcast is uh, getting to know our guests a little bit better. And I sort of knew Mark from some interactions that we had, but uh, that hour I spent with him was just really uh, fascinating to me to, to really understand uh, Mark a little bit better. So uh, what was your sort of big takeaway from that, uh, that conversation with Mark? Well, this was cool, Bela. And this is another really interesting human being who has a passion that's not necessarily about a specific product or an industry or even a technology Uh, But this person had a passion for um, building businesses and leading teams. And I thought that was really uh, cool and interesting. And what that led to, in my observation, was this idea of opportunity recognition. Again, another recurring theme that we've talked about. And you two were talking a little bit about being born with this ability. But when I listened carefully to what you were both saying, I realized that there were some great takeaways for myself and for our audience. And that's this notion of a, you have to get involved first. And you will like to talk about bias for action. And Mark really represented a bias for action. Get involved. And then the second part was observe carefully. I love the term that he said somebody made up about him of being a micro observer. Um, but I thought that, you know, really, I think our listeners and, and again, myself included, can be always get better at opportunity recognition through this idea um, of becoming a micro observer, of watching and listening to the world around you, of learning from others. Um, and and seeing where the next opportunity might be. Yeah, I think those are those are great comments, uh, Mike. I, I I agree wholeheartedly. You know, one of the other things that really popped out at me was uh, Mark's ability to sort of draw upon his network and and to reach out to the 
people that he knows and 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 convince them and help them to contribute to his project and 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 to sort of move forward you know this whole network thing that he set up in this remote Adirondack Lake uh, was really a testament to his sort of skill in identifying a need and then figuring out how to draw upon his network and bring that network together towards a common goal and and, and a, resulting in a very, very successful, successful project. Yeah, you got to give before you can get too. And I, and I love this. To me, you know, a lot of people ask me as I'm in my 50s now, and I know you're just a, a teeny bit older than that, Bela. Um, but, you know, oh, does growing old suck? You know, a lot of my, my former students who are younger, I have a lot of younger friends, and I'm like, no, there's a lot of great things about growing older and really cultivating the network and being so fortunate to know a lot of people and learn from them. And Mark really captured that, and he's like the expert. I'm like a novice at that. But it's it really struck me as this idea of not cultivating a network for the exchange of what you can give, of what you can get, it's what you can give, and then it gets paid back many times over in many different ways. And I thought that was just brilliant. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And it's it's all part of, you know, I think as as we do get older, uh, we we draw upon our experience. And Mark also said a, some great words about sort of understanding what life is really about and what are the important things. And one of the key important things is giving back. And and sort of helping others, uh, and and I just think you know that was that was done very very well in that conversation we had. Yeah, the ending to me just blew my hair back, um, and I thought it kind of left you speechless, which was great. But the idea of appreciating not every day we hear that all the time, but he was looking at things from an hour by hour basis almost, and I thought that was great, and that's something that I think will really impact me um, from this interview. Yeah, it it did it did sort of leave me speechless when he said that. You know, I was like, "Whoa, <laughs> what do I say now?" And I was just tongue tied. But uh, it was my true feelings coming out, and I think it was uh, his honesty that 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 triggered that. It was so fantastic. I thought, yeah, yeah, I agree. I thought it was a great podcast. And uh, anything else we want to comment on this one, Mike? No, be nice, be good people, give, and it'll all come back to you. A lot of people, I think, that we talk with who are struggling to figure out what to do next. This is a great kind of underpinning or a great foundation of how to how to not just be a successful entrepreneur or have a great career but just be a great human yeah great summary mike uh with that we're going to wrap it up so thanks for listening we really appreciate it and uh hope to see you next time we'll see you next time this podcast is produced for mike and i by our friends at busy media of schenectady new york they can be found at busymedia.co